slice of time. It is mystery night. Mystery night. <laughs> All right, Nick, quick. Oh, that, that rhymes. <laughs> Nick, quick. It is our first mystery note. Tonight on this important radio station, which takes time out in its early, burly rush, 20th century, end over end, tumbling day, it takes time out to salute the mystery of another great American. Tonight's mysterious event occurred in Dalton, Georgia. An L&M freight train was brought to a screeching halt in downtown Dalton. Early Saturday, when a body was seen lying between the tracks. Five engines and four boxcars had passed over the man later identified as Henry Lee Baker when the train finally screeched to a halt. Baker was still beneath one boxcar when brakeman R.D. Rice reached out gingerly and shook him. Oh, go away, Baker mumbled drowsily. Baker, who had slept soundly while the train rumbled over him, later told police he thought he was home in bed when Rice shook him. Baker offered no explanation whatsoever as to how he got on the tracks. <laughs> oh, wonder if that's true. Hey, hold it, Nick. Hold it there. Reset that, please, if you will. We're getting a little home here. I'll correct this baby here. Jerry, whenever you put this on, try and see whether... Nah, now we're off the air entirely. Hello, test. Uh, just check it so that you see whether you get a hum here or not. Ah, uh, well. Uh, hello, there, there. Check it every time you put it on because it's a heavy hum. Okay? You know, I wonder whether that's actually true. Uh, I'm sorry, Jerry. You've got to do that. <laughs> that's the way with this, uh, you know, we built this out of a kit, this studio here. But uh, I'm, uh, you know, I wonder whether that was true. I wonder whether that guy actually did not know that he was out there sleeping between the tracks. It would be a fantastic moment, wouldn't it, though? I mean, you go to bed, and of course, obviously, you're, you're kind of bombed or something. Or either that, or maybe the guy walks in his sleep, I don't know. And you, you go to bed, see, and the next thing you know, you wake up between the wheels of a freight train. And, and you have no knowledge of how you got there. That's right. You know, that's right. Think about that. You know, you hear this stuff, and you don't really visualize what it would be like to actually have that happen to you. And I'm going to tell you, that, you know, a fantastic moment. Five freight cars rolled over them. And the brakeman reaches in, you know, and he figures, well, you know, nothing but a lot of, you know, pile of bones and stuff. And he reaches in and shakes the guy. He says, oh, get away. Oh, that's what time it is. It's only five o'clock in the morning. What the hell? And he says, where are you, man? You're between the wheels of an L&N freight train. And uh, <laughs> what? Well, that's right out of Rod Serling, you know. It really is. Now, you want to hear You want to hear another mysterious uh, thing? Well, actually, this isn't so mysterious, but uh, it's a significant of our times. I mean, so everywhere there's dislocation. Have you had a feeling once in a while, friends, that your life is chipping off slowly at the edges and pieces are falling off? And as you walk along the yellow brick road of existence, that uh, you're leaving footprints that look like chicken tracks that don't even look like your feet? Oh, there's mysterious stuff afoot. And there's also tragedy everywhere we look. For example, in St. Ignatius, Michigan, another American saga. A guard spied a motorist stopping his car in the early morning gloom on the bridge which connects lower and upper Michigan. The driver got out of his car. 
and walked in a skulking way to the guardrail. The guard, thinking a suicide was about to take place, roared out in his patrol car with lights flashing and sirens screaming. As the guard reached the man, the motorist was seen dropping something over the rail into the water 152 feet below. The guard called him and said, all right, man, what are you up to? The man explained that it was his bowling ball, his bowling shoes, and his bowling bag. He said his scores had gone down so badly, he was bowling so rotten, he wanted to get rid of his equipment in order that, in order that he'd be so disgusted, he would never attempt to try to bowl again. I'm pulling it, damn thing! Oh, it, Nick. Now, that's the first time I ever heard of a guy throwing, <laughs> throwing away a bowling ball. In, in disgust. You know, it's not easy to get rid of a bowling ball if you want to throw it away and you stop thinking about it. You know, there's a lot of stuff there. And uh, you hear that scene. Now, again, there's another one. Uh, yeah, well, no, uh, yeah, 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 okay. You hear, you know, you hear that and you can't... It's hard to associate with the reality of a thing like that. Can you imagine the moment when this guy, see, he's down on, on lane five, see, he's crouched down there and he's, you know, bowling balls are not cheap. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever bought a bowling ball, but he's down on lane five. He's been because you know, after all, when a guy owns a bowling ball, that's the uh, almost the uh, hallmark of the of the inveterate bowler to own his own ball. Do you agree, Jerry? I mean, here I've been bowling all my life, and I have never owned a bowling ball. Every time I go, you know, I use those lumpy ones they got in the bowling alley, you know, the ones with the knobs on them and the grooves in them, and Guys have carved their initials in them, you know. Oh, boy. Oh, did I ever tell you what time? Because <laughs> I, 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 I used to, at one point in my checkered career, I was about 15, I got a job at a place called a pinball. And the pinball was, you know, it's a bowling alley. They had, the, they had 20, 25 lanes, something like that. Big, you know, big bowling alley. And, and uh, they used to have these leagues with bowl there. Now, these leagues came from the steel mills. I mean, these were steel workers. These guys were not like, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the Pan Am office workers bowling league. It's very different. And so i never forget how I used to look forward to Wednesday nights. See, Wednesday night, oh, what a drag. Wednesday night, there was, there was uh, they, they called it plant bowling on Wednesday night, which was different, see, because they have offices and all that stuff in the mills, see. But plant bowling on Wednesday night was the night when uh, these various teams from uh, such, uh, such stellar uh, departments of the mill as uh, the number two blast furnace uh, would take on the, the, the number seven open hearth night shift crew. And I want to tell you, you never saw a bunch of gorillas and monkeys in your life bowling. It was like, it was like I'll tell you what it was like. It was like being at the other end of a bowling alley with a King Kong and all of his relatives are bowling. Well, now, it's a terrifying thing. Anyway, if you've ever set pins, you know that setting pins is one of life's more difficult jobs. And it's not easy. We had these big racks, you know, these big racks. You know, bring them down, the big Brunswick bulky calendar racks. And uh, they, they always insisted on Wednesday night, because these guys were real serious. You know, they put 50 bucks on the games and that, that we had to have new, new pins. They were all new pins. Now, for those of you who never have set bowling pins in your life. I'm going to tell you a little thing about bowling pins. Very shortly after bowling pins are put into action, especially when you have guys 
bowling, who lost the ball. Bowling pins cease to have a true shape. As a matter of fact, uh, within about, oh, I'd say within about four games, they begin to change, and the bottoms start getting round. Well, when they first put them into play, the bottoms of those bowling pins have edges on them like a Schick razor. Now, what does that mean? Well, you get three of those just below the kneecap at full tilt. In the first game, you are limping for a week. And if you're not, <laughs> I mean, if you're not limping, you're bent over because you got it in the back. You're going to get hit. That's a fact. You're going to get hit when you're a pinball. Well, one night, I am, I am down there. I'm scrunched down, and I'm doubling this night, which is pure hell. Now, what is doubling? You're setting pins on two alleys at once. Some guy did not show, and so Shepard's holding down seven and six at the same time, saying, so I'm into the pit down there, and you know, they're all padded. You see now they're padded. They've got this black padding, and I'd hop up on the back, see? I'd pull my feet up, and it's this, this gorilla, you know, from the from the number two shipping shop, or someplace like uh, the, the number seven clag works. <laughs> all these mean, and they, they look down, and they, they look down, and you'd see these, these two beady eyes, a great growth of stubble. Guy wearing his shirt, you know, says Al on the cover of his work shirt. Uh, they used to have blue bowling shirts on the back and big yellow letters that would say uh, Blast Furnace. And when you drew the Blast Furnace, you drew men. Everybody, wa- By the way, everybody wanted to get the tin mill because on the tin mill they had a lot of little guys that worked in offices. You see, you'd like to get the tin mill. Well, one night I got the Blast Furnace is taking on the number three open hearth. And uh, the Blast Furnace is bowling on seven. And the open hearth is bowling on six. Schwartz is over on five. Schwartz is holding down five, and he's got the Bessemer converter. And he's another crowd of, of, of gorillas. And the guys, if, if you can imagine, guys, because, you know, they lift weights all day long. Remember that. These guys, it's sheer physical labor. So, uh, you know, 18 guys get around a 17-ton ingot of steel and lift it up with their arms <laughs> So by the time they're bowling, a bowling ball is like really roughly like holding a tennis ball in the hands of some of these guys. And so Schwartz is down there in number five. And some guy in the Bessemer converter is lofting, and I mean lofting. He could take that ball, he could hold the bowling ball like in the palm of his hand. And he just stick the tips of his fingers using a two-fingered ball. And that guy was throwing the ball so high that it would loft down it would land roughly about two-thirds of the way down the alley, you know, and go, boom, bounce, and land on the second hop right in the middle of the pins. Well, now, you don't get wood that way. What you get is pin boys. That's the truth, I'm telling you, because the ball, <laughs> you talk about ricochet. Well, Schwartz has gotten a couple of fantastic shots right between the shoulder blades by these pins. Well, now, Schwartz finally had to use what is called in the pin boy parlance, he used capital punishment. Do you know what capital punishment is for a pin setter when he's really bugged at a guy that's bowling? Well, Schwartz takes the guy's ball, see, after his first ball, which he has lofted. I mean, the ball, if you can imagine a ball dropping vertically into the pins. The ball did not roll into the pins. It dropped vertically into the pins, went right over the head pin. <laughs> and bam, Schwartz is up in the air with a pin flying, hitting him. Well, there's no way for you to judge a ball like that. See, so Schwartz gets hit, you know, in the knee and the foot. He's got a shot between his shoulder blades. And uh, I might warn you that the following episode has elements of distinctly bad taste.
You hear what I'm saying? Elements of bad taste. So turn the radio down to a very minimal volume if you have uh, sensitive nerves. Schwartz picked up the ball. You know, and you, before you put it into the return rack, you know, the chute that returns the ball to the bowler, he just picks up the ball. Now, he's back in the, he's back in the, uh, in the pit, see? The guy can't see him. He's back in the pit. He takes the ball, and I see him. I'm over there in six, you know, setting my pins. And Schwartz says, look at this son of a gun. I said, yeah, Schwartz. Man, he's going to kill you before the night is out. Schwartz says, we'll see. And he goes, hoike pitui. Right into the thumb hole. That's the pin boy's final and total gesture of defiance. You know what he did, of course. Do I have to tell you? Do I have to outline it? No, you don't need a diagram? <laughs> this is WOR New York. And now it is time for a very important announcement. It is important announcement time. Listen carefully. It may change your life. historic artistic event occurs that is truly unforgettable. Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg. you are liable to regret it for all of your born days. I, Gene Shepard, your fearless leader, are going to do one show in New York this season. I repeat, one, one show. If you boot this, you have no excuse. Do not say that you were not warned. I will be unbelievably live at Carnegie Hall, Tuesday, October 17th, 8 p.m. Tuesday, October 17th, 8 p.m., we will have with us Sinful Street, which is a better-than-average group, and have a lot of unbelievable surprises for you. You had better get your tickets now. They are going fast. Tickets are $350, $450, and $550, which is a fantastic bargain for Carnegie Hall. You can get your tickets by mail, by sending a check, or money order, and stamp self-addressed envelope to Carnegie Hall, 154 West 57th Street, New York, 10019. Be sure to tell them you want tickets to the Gene Shepherd Show. You will never forget it. Yes, it is a historic occasion. For further information, call Carnegie Hall Box Office at area code 212. 
247-7459. Do not call me. By the way, the tickets are now at Ticketron outlets all over New Jersey, all over the area. You can call them at 212-644-4400. Ticketron, Carnegie Hall, October 17th, 1972. History will record this night. second straight record-breaking year. See your New York, New Jersey, American motor dealers soon. And tell them Tex sent you. Yeah, Tex. My God, you pick them up good. You lay them down good, Tex. Lock you all that picking and singing. Keep them letters and carriage coming in here. By the way, friends, exploration, according to this note here, is an 11-word, 11-letter word spelled <laughs> Smithsonian. And I'm not kidding. Smithsonian Magazine is a real great little magazine. comes out every month. Monthly Adventures for the Mind. The October issue, for instance, takes you to London to visit a farm family that lives, by the way, right under the main runway at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> I talk about, it's a wild story. And anyway, it's a really great magazine. Uh, Smithsonian is published by the Smithsonian Institution. And when you, when you pick up a copy, or a, rather a... When you become a subscriber to Smithsonian Magazine, you become a member of the Smithsonian Institution. You get a you know, certificate and everything, and the cost is only 10 bucks. An associate, you can take part in tours and expeditions and so forth, and you get special discounts on books and gifts. And it's a really great magazine, uh, all, all things uh, beside that. So to become a Smithsonian associate and receive your subscription to the magazine, write Smithsonian in care of, well, whoever you like, in care of W-O-R, just write Smithsonian, care of W-O-R, New York, 10018. Smithsonian. Or you can call them right now. They have phone numbers going. Uh, you just call them at M-U-7-1100. I repeat, the number is live right now. The operators are sitting there crouched, wearing their, you know, their native head guard. And uh, carrying their machetes. That's MU seven one one O O. Don't send money. You'll be billed later. Smithsonian, a new synonym for exploration. And uh, let's see, we have another one here, kind of a fun one. If you're a tire fan, and uh, there are guys who are, if you need tires for your tin can you're driving around, see your local General Tire specialist. 
and mount a pair of famous General Jet white walls. Great tires. Prices start as low as $29.90 for a pair of long mileage tires in popular size. This is really one of the favorite size tires in the public. It's way up on the charts. 650-13 tubeless. Federal excise tax is $175 a tire. You look for the big red General Tire G, right? It's a General Tire place. And in Jersey, Jersey City, ask for Mike or Sonny. Hey, you'll love Sonny. Ask for Mike or Sonny at Cole General Tire Company, 362 Summit Avenue. And you just tell Sonny he's awful cuddly. la da Then after you pick up your teeth, you can, you know, talk to him about tires. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, we've done them all, haven't we? By George. How about that? Hey, you know, uh, if I, if I, uh, you know, I, I, reminiscences of a pin boy are uh, somewhat sickening. And uh, I, you no, know, I, I tell you, I, I, uh, I remember with great, I've always had in my, are there certain things in your, your uh, life, in your memories? Now, I mean, talking about your memory, in your just ordinary walking around life that have uh, special meanings that nobody else could quite understand. For example, uh, I, I, now most people can't stand this stuff. Orange pop. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know what orange pop is, Nick. You know, just orange pop. I'm talking about the big quart bottles, the kind you get at the supermarket, you know, with some cockamamie uh, brand name on it. I'm not even, not even talking about the big ones, you know, just some brand that just says orange drink, orange pop. Well, the reason I have a soft spot in my head for orange pop is that when I was working as a pin boy, and uh, it seemed to go on forever. You know, you'd come in at, at 6.30 at night, the, the league would start bowling at 7, and these guys wouldn't stop bowling till midnight. And it was hot. You know, they used to air condition the front of the bowling alley where the bowlers were. The back of the bowling alley was a little bit like one of the inner circles of Dante's Inferno. Hotter, oh my God, was it hot. And we would work back there just, to, you know, like galley slaves. And you never hardly even see the pin boy. Just, he's a shadowy figure back there. And you know, once in a while, he's heard very briefly, you know, occasional curse word, that's about all, or, or a high, thin scream when his ribs are caved in by a curving, arcing shot that goes right into the pocket and then makes a hook. Well, we used to come in, and you get so thirsty, and they never stop. These guys bowl steadily. They, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't say, I'm going to take 10 minutes off and go get, a, go get a glass of water or something. So each one of us would bring his bottle of pop back there. <laughs> and I used to bring this orange pop. And, of course, it'd get lukewarm. And, and I, had a, I had this T-shirt, you know, White Sox T-shirt. I was a White Sox fan, that little T-shirt. You know. And uh, I'm, I'm working back there. Sometimes we'd work in nothing but shorts. It's so hot. And I remember just drinking this, this orange pop hour after hour after hour after hour after, you know, orange pop. And I'd jump down out of the pit with sweat dripping all over me. I'd get the rack up. And I'd raise the rack up. And I'd see this bowler down there. He's putting a tentacle platter on his hands. And he's getting the ball. And then I would duck back of the, back of the pads and take a long suck of my orange pop. Just gulp it down. Oh, God, when will it ever end? And, you know, this, this kind of manual labor, sport manual labor, is a special type of manual labor. It, uh, it's, it's, it's fun for the people that are doing it. 
you know, the guys that are bowling. But the guy back in that pit, man, I'll tell you, it's, it's like, you know, imagine if you were on the top of one of those Roman warships, if you were on the top there, and the breezes were blowing, and you were, like, say, uh, the assistant captain, and you had a fancy uniform, galley slaves, you know, a, a galley slave ship was kind of a groovy thing. You know, you ride there, you get, everything's going. You just see these little sticks sticking out, you know. You don't see the guys down there sweating there, you know what, off. Well, anyway, that's the way with bowling. And uh, there is another type of sport, uh, labor, which is rarely discussed, and it, it, it connects with this bowling ball. I spent three summers as a Class A caddy. Now, that's, uh, that's quite an achievement. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about caddying, there are grades of caddies. That's right. Did you know that there's two grades? When you, at least in, in the two country clubs I worked in, they had a Class A caddy and a Class B caddy. And the Class A caddy had a green and white badge. You know, they had a big button with your number on it. And the Class A caddy, and it's a great big green and white, and the kid who was a Class B caddy had a white badge. No, no color. He just had a white badge, black numbers on it. And when you got the green badge, you were an A caddy. Now, what does an A caddy mean? Well, an A caddy means he really knows, you know, he knows how to be a, he's a great caddy, to be honest with you. <laughs> he's a good caddy. And what is a good caddy? Well, a good caddy is one who, who can advise the, the golfer on the clubs he uses. Now, that's really what, what an, an A caddy is, and he's supposed to know. And he has a fantastic eye. Never loses a ball. Uh, you know, as soon as that, that guy uh, tees off, no matter what kind of shot he gets off, he may get a hook shot that goes in two complete circles. I've seen guys with such hook shots when you're caddying. Literally, his ball would describe a 720-degree arc, which is two complete circles, and then head down the fairway. You know, 12, 15 yards. <laughs> yeah, you see the ball circling overhead. <laughs> round and round. <laughs> There's a hook, man. And, and, and I remember one, one golfer, you know, one of the great moments in a golfer's life is when his hook changes to a slice. That, uh, you know, that, that means he's really starting to hit the ball. <laughs> and, and so instead of rotating uh, counterclockwise, now his ball rotates clockwise, and he knows his game is getting much better. Well, I, I remember the day you know, after, after about six months of working as a caddy, Class B caddy. See, a Class B caddy is merely a peon. He is a, he is a surf, a drudge. And the cheapy golfers come around and they order a Class B caddy. Well, a Class B caddy is just that. He just carries your bags, keeps his mouth shut. And uh, when you hit a ball in the weeds, you say, go get the ball, kid. And he goes and looks for the ball. That's about all a Class B caddy does. Now, a Class A caddy has class. He's got that fancy button, and uh, he strides up to the up to the green, the tee, rather. He strides up to the tee, and the golfer settles himself into his stance. And at that point, the Class A caddy says, <clears throat> Excuse me, sir. And he says, uh, Yes? Say, I think a number two would be better than a straight driver on this hole. And he says, Oh, very good. And he takes the number two wood. You're now a Class A caddy. Now, you can fake that, and uh, which I successfully did. However, you, t you, you hear about this guy throwing his, his uh, bowling ball in the water. Only once did I ever actually see this actually happen on a golf course. You know, this is always a big joke. You hear about guys throwing away their clubs. Well, only, only once in all my 
three summers of caddying did I actually see it happen. And you know, when you see something happen that you always hear about in your life, uh, you know, like, well, have you ever seen a guy slip, actually slip on a banana peel? Of course not. But if you ever did see a guy slip on, on a banana peel, you know, you see a guy walking down the street and there's a banana peel. He steps on the damn thing and, you know, <laughs> up, up goes his feet, you know, and kaplunk, he lands on his, you know, bottom. Well, you would not forget it. You would not forget it. Another thing, there are many things we sort of have as cliches which never happen in life. Now, I have been going to ball games all of my life, either playing or going. And all of the times I have gone to ball games, I have never once, never once, I'm sorry, Leonard Culpit, Larry Merchant, I have never once heard a fan ever say, Kill the umpire! Have you ever heard that? You won't. That's only in cartoons. That, that lives exclusively in literature. Uh, <laughs> it's just like, it's just like in, in, uh, in life, you know? It's, it's, it, they say things in plays, for example. No one ever says in real life. Like, for example, you see things like... Uh, Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? I remember sitting in there and watching this thing, and all of a sudden this guy says, I know what you're trying to do. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to emasculate me. And nobody, you're not going to emasculate. He goes on. Thank you, Earl. Earl's laying some bananas on us. He says, you can't, you can't emasculate me. And I thought to myself, I have never heard anybody in public argue with his wife before friends, no matter how many drinks he's had, about her trying to emasculate him. I never heard it. They do it in plays all the time. Well, so, I, you know, I'm already at the age of uh, 14 or 15, whatever I am, you know, I'm a Class A caddy. I'm already developing that cynical, sardonic view. <laughs> and I'm out, I'm out of the, out of the of course, beautiful day, fantastic day. And it was, it was a beautiful spring day. Uh, the sun was high. And, you know, golfers are funny. Uh, they, springtime, it always seems to them that it's a whole new season, everything is new and clean, and they're, they're, they're going to be much better golfer this year. Uh, this is always true of ball teams. Clean slate. There's no such thing as a clean slate. You carry last year's inadequacies with you like a wart on your thumb. It's just not going to go away. Ed Cranepool next year is not, I repeat, not going to turn into Dick Allen. He simply isn't. Shucks. <laughs> Damn it! Here we were hoping. Well, that's that's the thing about the you know the human animal. He 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 he's not only idealistic, but he tends to the romantic. Uh, do you have a little romantic music? Uh, would you please look in there, uh, uh, Jerry? There's a thing called the uh, uh, classical gassers. I'd like to salute that that side of our uh, our existence, please. Just give me any one of them. They're all. They're all soupy. Give me something really good, you know, something really soupy. That's right, because that's the, that's the soupy part of our head. That's the soft, uh, overripe cantaloupe side of our brain, you know, just... Oh, yes. Oh, of course. Oh, this is perfect. You couldn't have done better, Nick, if you'd have written it yourself. Maybe you did. Just <laughs> you did, huh? <laughs> Turned it out of your kazoo one night, huh? You and the help of a couple of friends sitting around. One guy on banjo, another guy on jug, and you turned it out. Yes. And so tonight... And so tonight, this fellow victim of faith, me, 
takes this opportunity to salute that sappy... Kind of a nice little interlude there. Sorry to disappoint you. It ain't going to be much difference after the after the inauguration, friends. Your knee is still going to hurt. Those chicks are still going to put you down. Nothing's going to change. The only thing that's going to change is the names on the buttons. La da 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 Anyway, Shepard is out there on this beautiful spring day. See, and I too, you know, being a being a, a, a uh, basically a romantic idealist, and I, 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 too, was infected by the spring. And for the first eight holes on this trip around the, the Pinewood Country Club, uh, <laughs> Flick is working away with his guys. He were both Class A caddies, and he's way across the ninth hole somewhere over on the other side of the fairway, and I'm plunking away there with my man, who was a little short, round dentist, who wore white T-shirts. He shouldn't have worn t- white T-shirts. There's a certain kind of guy who looks like a bunch of grapes. You know, he's got this... Uh, he looks like a bunch of grapes hanging. You know, he's got little large footballs all over him and stuff. And when you wear these these uh, very tight white T-shirts, you look like a bunch of uh, grapes with large footballs hanging all over him with the white uh, T-shirting on. <laughs> That's what you look like, see? And so he's clunking around the course, and he, he's gotten very quiet. It's about, uh, you know, it's about two hours since we started out. He's having a bad time. As a matter of fact, you know how some guys uh, spend their time going around the golf course in a rough, in the rough? I've seen guys who never hit the fairway once. You know, they just went from tree to bush, from bush to tall grass, from tall grass to sand, from sand to water, then out of water again into the tops of the trees. And <laughs> well, that's... That's one kind of golfer. This guy went around underground. Uh, he had a way. Yeah, he literally, he dug the biggest divots I ever saw in my life. This guy was putting, you know, four or five pounds of dirt in the air every shot. And his ball sometimes would just burrow under like a mole. So he's plunking around, of course, just digging up divots. And I suggested to him as a Class A caddy, I said, Sir, uh, I would suggest that... Uh, uh, that you uh, adjust your stance here. You're uh, standing a little far away from the ball there, and, and you're bending over, so you're getting under it. And he'd look up at me with this red face. It looked like a clenched fist, you know, his face, with uh, with, with rimless glasses. He looks up at me, and he says, Mind your own business! I said, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he's sweating. I could see the, the, the sweat running down his white T-shirt. Now he's becoming very silent. He's playing golf with apparently his brother-in-law who is just who's peeling him like a like a banana i mean they're playing for like five dollars a hole he's already down about 50 bucks and his game is getting no better we are now approaching the ninth green he is about 150 yards out he is now playing roughly his 12th shot you got it the 450 yard hole so he's doing a little better on this hole than he has been and that he's out there, and he takes his he takes his number his number five iron. Well, now the number five iron in the hands of a Nicholas is a docile, indeed a magical instrument. The number five iron in the hands of certain duffers I have known can be a lethal instrument. As a matter of fact, it can be as lethal as a machete. 
to look out for it. it can, I, I've seen guys cut balls right in half, <coughs> slice the top right off with a five iron. So he gets out there with his five, see, he looks down, down at the green, he gets his stance, and I'm standing at a respectful distance, well, or actually a safe distance, when I was standing behind him. I was about 100 yards away. I wasn't going to get hit by any any slices or any shots off the off the ground. You know, he used to get them in all directions, so I'm standing back there, not realizing, this is important, not realizing I'm about to see one of those magical moments like the man slipping on the banana peel, like the fan back at third base, hollering, kill the umpire. I'm picking my teeth, and I can see Flick over there working away with his man, and he takes a swing with the five iron. Well, now, men look kind of ridiculous sometimes when they do not have a good swing off the tee, you know, a, a driver, but there's nothing like a man with a bad a bad five iron. He just he's terrible. Looks like he's it looks like he's cutting weeds. It really looks like he's got a sickle or something. So he just goes whap, goes whap, big, fantastic divot flies up in the air. They see. I see dandelions. I see earthworms. I see grubs. I see uh, pebbles. I see you know it's like a little explosion. But the ball does not move. He has just dug a nice big fat round hole in the ground and he hasn't got he hasn't even touched the ball. He gets you know he squinches down a little lower moves back, bends over, which is deadly. You should never do this. He, he's bending over like a U now, looking closer at the ball. He swings again. Another gigantic divot. He straightened up. The ball, incidentally, has rolled forward rapidly on this shot. It has rolled forward. He really hit it. But it rolled forward rapidly, rolled right into a trap, out of a trap, rolled out of a trap. You never saw a shot. Rolled out of a trap, rolled right over the fairway and into the water hazard on the next hole. Just rolled right in. He just takes his five iron. It was a steel shaft, beautiful five iron. As a matter of fact, it was a Ben Hogan set, a match set, magnificent golf clubs. And he just bent the five iron into a U-shape over his knee. Just without saying a word, just bent it. Just bent it like that. He took the five iron and he just swung it by the, the he had the, you know, the, the leather handles, just swung it. Threw it right in the water. Went out halfway out into the water, just went. He walks over to me and takes his bag, which was a beautiful black leather bag with his name on the side, you know, dentist, DDS, the smiling dentist. He grabs this bag. He just, give me the bag. The bag walks to the shore of the water and just swings it, just grabs it by the handle, and just all the balls are falling out, the towels are falling out, all the peas, all the crap in his fall. He's going, whoop! In it goes. It's about 25, 30 feet out in the water. Now, this water hazard had very steep, as they often do, had very steep bottoms. The bottom cut away fast because they didn't want you coming around there and uh, pulling your ball out of it. You know, they had a little deal with a guy who came out and rescued the balls, you know, and he, they paid him, <laughs> you know, he paid them and all kinds of... So he threw this thing about 25 feet right out in the water. See, and I see the frogs jumping out and the lily pads are bobbing up and down. It just sank like a rock. He turns to me and says, if you want those damn clubs, they're yours. And turned on his heel and walked back towards the clubhouse. And there I'm standing. 
just standing there. I didn't know what to do. What do you do? Do you go back to the clubhouse with him? Do you hold his hand? Do you run behind him and say, sir, sir, I'll find the ball for you? Or what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I waited out. <laughs> I said, the hell with you, Jack. I waited out, and I was about... Well, about, oh, roughly about up to my shoulders, I just went right under the water, and I dove under, you know, and there on the bottom, it, it, among about 15 balls that had been hit in there, there on the bottom is this guy's golf bag with the clubs all over it, and I just swam around, pulled the clubs up, and from that day to this, I own that set of clubs. You're looking at a guy that owns a mat set of clubs. Beautiful set. He had 14 clubs. I mean, a complete set of irons with the woods, the whole bit, see? A nice black leather bag. The only trouble is I, 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 I've never been able to get his name off the side. You know, it's got this dentist on the bottom. <laughs> and, and, and the only, there's another problem, too. He was five feet four. Now, those clubs are kind of short for me, but uh, I make do. You know, with my game, really, it's, it's academic. It's academic. And they're, they're beautiful clubs. They're, they're really lovely. And so once in a while when I've you know, played a game of golf, I play about three games of golf every millennia. And uh, when I've played my third game of golf for this decade, uh, I usually uh, sit back there in the clubhouse, got my, you know, my can of beer, and my clubs beside me. And guys will come up and say, hey, those are interesting clubs. Ben, Ben, uh, gee, it's great clubs. Old Ben's clubs himself, huh? They look like good clubs. They are good clubs. It's funny, how come you, uh, you know, they're a foot and a half short for you? Do you like them that way? I said, well, it's just my game. But I never really tell them where I got those clubs. Because you know, the, you, when, you're, when, you're, when you're playing golf with you know, important guys, you just, you just you know, guys like Earl Dow, you know, very important guys, John Wingate, that crowd, you know, you don't tell them the real story of life. You don't, you don't come right out and admit it, you know. <laughs> oh, just uh, just hope, friends. That's uh, kind of a good game. That's a new four-person participation game, by the way. You can buy a board game now called Hope. Right on, Whitey. <laughs> so long. <laughs> That's my favorite honky. We'll see you. <laughs> John Wingate. You can see where his head is. So uh, keep failing, friends. Even though you have a leaky bailing can, you just keep that can going. Just keep going. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll work. Yeah, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith. He's got the news. News in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. Allied field reports in South Vietnam reported today that communist forces have cut the two most important roads to Saigon. 35 miles south of the capital, a road to the Mekong Delta was blocked. 25 miles to the north, the other road was cut. Hundreds of civilians were caught in a crossfire as government soldiers battled the communist troops for control of the route north of Saigon. Military officials are speculating that it could be an enemy move to isolate Saigon before the United States presidential election next month. Farther away from Saigon, they're still fighting around on luck. The most severe battles today took place there, 60 miles north of the capital. Despite reports to the contrary, the United States Military Command in Saigon says the F-111 fighter bombers will remain on combat duty. Yesterday, military officials released a report that one of the $15 million swing-wing planes had crashed at an unknown location on its first combat mission over North Vietnam. 
The F-111s went back to the Indochina War five days ago after a 1968 withdrawal because three of them had crashed because of mechanical failures. President Nixon's health, education, welfare, and labor appropriations feud with Congress may have gotten a new log on the fire as the Senate approved a bill tonight that is almost a duplicate of the one Mr. Nixon vetoed in August. The latest appropriation is a $1.7 billion over the president's budgeted figure, and in his last veto, Mr. Nixon said the $30 billion total amounted to reckless federal spending. The new measure does allow Mr. Nixon to withhold $935 million from individual programs of his choice. This is provided that no one program is cut more than 10%. Senator George McGovern was in New York and in Boston today to tell all who had listened that President Nixon is failing to control street crime. McGovern called for creation of neighborhood crime prevention programs to provide more money for foot patrolmen, tenant patrols, and other measures in the nation's 25 largest cities to cut crime offenses. In Boston, the Democratic presidential candidate accused the Nixon administration of being morally corrupt. And McGovern said the president's implication that he was responsible for the 20% Social Security increase was a fraud. McGovern noted that Mr. Nixon had opposed the increase that Congress had passed. Stop tearing your country apart, said Vice President Agnew today, and recognize your enemies. Agnew, speaking to several Vietnam veterans against the war who were at a Republican campaign rally in Fort Wayne, Indiana. They interrupted Mr. Agnew's speech with the question, how many bombs did you drop today? Agnew 